Food Heals Nation, what have you been doing lately when it comes to truly caring for your skin? Have you tried any of the light therapy facials or the LED masks? I've shared on this show how I use lasers to completely remove my brown spots in the past, and I love anything that can help me with wrinkles or blemishes or redness or scars. I find a lot of great products on YouTube that I test out, and I've just discovered a new brand. It's called Lima, and when you see the before and afters on YouTube, you're going to be a convert too. They are changing the way that you care for your skin on actually a profoundly scientific level. This is the Lima laser. It's the world's most powerful clinic grade cosmetic laser device and the only laser FDA cleared for at home use. Why this is important is because I was spending, I'm not going to tell you how much, way too much money years ago when I was getting rid of those brown spots when I was really healing my skin. And now This same type of technology is available at home, and I'm here for it. I am so excited. So this is a near-infrared laser light that penetrates deep into the dermis, simultaneously working on your fat, muscle, and bone to give you like a non-surgical facelift. It transforms your skin. It helps skin issues like wrinkles, sagging, blemishes, pigmentation, redness, breakouts, and scars. And it does this with zero damage, zero pain, and zero downtime. And I remember the lasers that I used to do, they did have some downtime, so this is great. Make sure to check out some of the before and after photos on the website so you can see what I'm talking about. They have YouTube videos too. But the reason it's groundbreaking is it uses that near-infrared low-level light technology, which is completely cold and painless, and it's 100 times more powerful than an LED. And the craziest part is you can even use it with a full face of makeup. So check it out for yourself. Visit lima.life. L is for live. Y is for younger. M is for masterful. A is for approved, and learn more about the Lima Laser. If you're interested in trying one today, you can sign up for their newsletter. Tell them that Food Heals sent you, and please let me know if you order one. I want to hear about your results. Again, it's lima.life, L-Y-M-A dot life. Y'all, oh my God, Food Heals Nation, I just got the softest sheets and pajama set from Cozy Earth, and I had to go and get you a discount code too, so that you could experience the coziness as well. You can visit CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS, and you'll get an exclusive 35% off. So Cozy Earth, it's like your one-stop shop for what they call the luxury she deserves. So listen up, guys because this could make a great gift for that special someone, your girlfriend, your wife, the mother in your life. And don't forget, Mother's Day will be here before we know it. So get a gift for the mom or moms. Here's a nice little gift you could ask for. Anyways, let's start with the sheets to transform your sleep. The coolest thing about Cozy Earth Bedding is that it is temperature regulating. So you stay cool, which is so important when you're sleeping. Plus they are just so soft. It feels like I'm sleeping on a cloud. Plus I love the cozy earth quality and longevity promise. All products come with a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty. So incorporating cozy earth products into your self-care routine can enhance your sleep quality and just overall wellness. So Again, this is the luxury you deserve. You can treat yourself to the ultimate in comfort and indulgence with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize your self-care and sleep health. 
And while you're at it, don't forget to check out the Bamboo Pajama Set. It was awarded Oprah's Favorite Things in 2019, so you know it's good. I love the softness and breathability of the fabric, and it has these really great side pockets. And don't forget that by supporting our sponsors, you support this show. Head over to CozyEarth.com, use the promo code FOODHEALS for an exclusive 35% off, and go get your mom the luxury she deserves on Mother's Day at CozyEarth.com with promo code FOODHEALS. Food Heals Podcast, Episode 240. Fasting can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome, and there's other things too. Sleeping can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. Exercise can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. But at the end of the day, the single greatest determinant of the makeup of your gut is the food that you eat. Holistic Voice presents the Food Heals Podcast with your hosts, Alison Melody and Susie Hardy. Join the Food Hills Nation and learn the secrets to go from feeling unwell to healing yourself. Warning, side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, an increase in sexual activity, feelings of joy, cravings for kale and quinoa, and a spike in Tinder matches. In real cases, women have experienced a strong desire to stop asking their boyfriends if they look fat and stress. If you experience any of these symptoms, post a selfie to Instagram immediately. All right, welcome, Food Heals Nation. Thanks for joining us. I'm Allison Melody. Today, we're talking with gut health expert, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Dr. B started his Instagram page in 2016, and it has quickly become the internet's most trusted source for health guidance. And don't worry, he doesn't just play a doctor on Instagram. He's also one in real life. In fact, he's a graduate of Georgetown University School of Medicine, and he trained in internal medicine at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and gastroenterology at the University of North Carolina Hospitals. Shout out to my hometown. He also earned a Master of Science in Clinical Investigation from Northwestern and a Certificate in Nutrition from Cornell University. Dr. B is board certified in both internal medicine and gastroenterology. I really, really love this episode. Episode, Food Heals Nation, because Dr. B breaks down really how important our gut health really is. And halfway through, we're going to have Whitney Lauritsen, one of our favorite co-hosts, come on and join and get all of her gut health questions answered. But first, Food Heals Nation, don't forget our Rise and Blue Mastermind is filling up fast. So let me know if you're going to join us for 2019, whether you want to become a world-renowned blogger, podcaster, brand, author, speaker, coach. If you want to figure out how to make an income helping people and doing what you love, I believe that you can make those dreams a reality in 2019. So join us for the six-month Rise and Bloom online mastermind. You can take it online. You can be anywhere in the world. It's the fourth Wednesday of every month, except January. We're doing the fifth Wednesday, so the last Wednesday of January. It's going to be me and you and other high-vibe wellness entrepreneurs. And I found that masterminds are just an amazing opportunity to bring together like-minded individuals and help really uplift each other in life and in business. They're one of my favorite things to do. And whatever your dream business is, you can't go at it alone. That's mistake number one. You need community. You need people to bounce ideas off of. You need a support system. And that's what Rise and Bloom aims to do. We'll help support each other with ideas and resources that you just can't get anywhere else. 
So let me tell you a little bit about what it includes. You're going to learn how to create passive streams of income for your wellness business through video, podcasting, blogging, writing, much more. It includes one monthly coaching call with myself and experts I bring on, on topics like marketing, monetization, networking, sales funnels, Facebook groups, podcasting, my favorite thing to talk about, clearly copywriting, social media events, retreats, and more. You're also going to get three private podcasts per month on topics like health, business, spirituality, relationships, wellness, girl bossing, manifestation, law of attraction, and so much more. You're going to have sample podcasts and guest experts on topics like how to build profitable networks, how to become an Amazon bestselling author, how to create profitable Facebook groups, the power of podcasting, transforming relationships with people you work with, and so much more. So the six-month schedule is we're going to meet at 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, fourth Wednesday of every month, except January. We're going to be on January 30th, which is technically the fifth Wednesday. So if you're interested, shoot me an email. And later in the episode with Dr. B, you're going to hear about how Alana from Sprouts and Krauts has up-leveled her business from doing the last mastermind. She'll be in the next one with us. You can come and hang out with us. You're also going to hear from Marina from Soul in the Raw and what she has to say about her amazing mastermind experience. And she'll be in the next one as well. So if you want to get started, just email me info at foodhealsnation.com. Next up, my interview with Will, aka Dr. B. The Food Heals Podcast starts now. He's the internet's most trusted source for gut health guidance, a respected clinician, and the recipient of numerous awards, and he has an accomplished background in research. Please welcome today's guest, Dr. Bolsowitz. Dr. B, how are you? Thanks, Ellie. I'm super psyched to be on the podcast, but I have to be honest with you. I wish I was in the studio right now. I wish you were too. I can imagine, like in my mind, I have this like idealized image of what the studio is like. And we would have these coffee mugs that are like 32 ounces and they probably (laughs) wouldn't have coffee in them, but we would just be like sitting there with these monstrous coffee mugs. They will either have green juice or wine because that's how we roll. So I wish you you were too. (laughs) I I have a question. Is it weird if I listened to The Greatest Showman to kind of get myself psyched up for this podcast? I love that movie. Oh my God. Is that messed up? Like (laughs) when I was in high school and I played basketball, it would be like, you know, you could do the Rocky, you could do like, you know, Welcome to the Jungle, Guns N' Roses. And now here I am and I got two kids and I'm listening to The Greatest Showman. Um, that is so cool. You're my new favorite guest because that's my favorite movie. I saw it on a plane and I didn't get the full experience because I was like, it's a musical. And so I went home and I rented it on like Apple iTunes or whatever. And then I watched it again in like full HD and I was so happy. It's such a good movie. I was telling my wife that, you know, one of the things is that like, if you are a guy and every single woman on the planet thinks that you are the greatest thing since sliced bread. And yet guys still respect you, like guys still respect you, then you are really, really good at what you do. And there's only two people that I know of that actually meet those criteria, to be honest with you. Okay. Who are they? Well, Hugh Jackman is one of them. And that's because he did Wolverine, you know? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, totally. He's so good. I I want him to see him win an Oscar. Like, I think that he's that talented. I mean, he should win an Oscar. Yes. And then the second guy, I don't know that he's ever going to win an Oscar, but I love The Rock. Like, The Rock's awesome. He could win an Emmy. I bet she could do that. I didn't really appreciate him, but now like I watch Ballers and I mean, it's not the best show ever, but he's really good. 
Well, for what it's worth, like I know we're totally off topic right now, but I used to work in Savannah a couple of years ago and they were filming the the new Baywatch movie, which is not new anymore, but at that time right. it was. Yeah. And um, The Rock went out of his way to come to the children's ward at the hospital. So behind the scenes, like he's a good person and that's really cool. That I love stories like that because there's so many celebrities that kind of break your heart when you find out who they really are. And there's so many that are really genuinely good people doing good things. So that's really great to hear. Exactly. So cool. Okay, Dr. V. So tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? What do you do? And you know, what, how did you get there? I am a doctor. I'm a gastroenterologist, which means that I am a specialist when it comes to all parts of the intestines and digestion and even the liver. So I uh, am considered an expert on the esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, pancreas, liver, all those things. I'm also board certified as an internal medicine doctor because I had to do that in order to become a gastroenterologist. So I'm a full-time gastroenterologist. I, I live and work in Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, was rated the number one city in the world above Paris by Condé Nast. So that's kind of cool. cool. That's so yeah. cool. I got into College of Charleston, and then um, I went to University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Oh, nice. Well, this is both you know, similar beach towns, so that's, that's really yes. cool. I love Charleston. I'm a full-time GI doctor. I've been in practice for a few years now, and after I finished my training, I came out and... There were a lot of things going on in my life that kind of led to this. Um, I got married. My wife ate differently than me. We had a child. And also, I started to see all this science that was emerging. And I became very interested initially in the concept of using nutrition to treat GI disease naturally led me to the microbiome, which is something that I hope we get to talk about in great detail tonight. It has been an explosion of science to the point that it's very difficult for doctors to keep up with how much information is coming this fast, like completely changing the way that we think about the way our body works. I mean, to be honest with you, completely changing the way that we just think about ourselves as human beings. And so I started to study these things and we can definitely like dive in with greater detail in a minute. But the bottom line is that I started to study these things on my own time because I just, I was so interested in like what this could do and how I could help my patients, but it wasn't a part of my conventional Western training. I, I mean, I trained at these great places, Georgetown, Northwestern, the university of North Carolina, my GI division, most GI doctors would rate the University of North Carolina as one of the, like potentially the number one GI division in the country, certainly in the top three. And, but this just wasn't a part of our training. And um, so I started to study this on my own time and became very passionate about it. And I brought it into my clinic and I saw amazing results with my patients, like amazing results. And I felt like there was too much power to the message to limit it to just being behind closed doors. And so two years ago, I decided I need to spread this word beyond my clinic. And so I started this Instagram account, um, the Gut Health MD. And I really wasn't expecting anything to come of this. It was just kind of like, hey, you know, I feel like people need to hear this. Like there's too much stuff on the internet about gut health that is just not scientifically accurate at all. 
And so I felt like people need to hear this. And, and it's just been this crazy whirlwind two years where now here I am talking to you and talking about, you know, being in the studio with a 32 ounce glass of wine and, you know, <laughs> it's crazy. So I'm, it's like really exciting and it's great because there is complete alignment with my passion and what I truly believe, what the message that I'm spreading. And the other thing that's really cool for me is that there's so many parts to my training that I don't want to bore your listeners with this stuff, but there's so many parts to my training that as I was going through it, it was very frustrating to me because I felt like I was never going to use it. And specifically what I'm referring to is that I was, I was a chief medical resident at Northwestern, which to make a long story short, that's an extra year. You don't get paid and you have to do so much work. And it's a lot of it is like about public speaking and stuff like that. And then the second part for me was research training. Like I, I worked so hard. I got a master's degree at night at Northwestern in clinical research. I went to the UNC School of Public Health, which is rated number two. And I was in a special program there. I was on a grant from the NIH. I published 20 papers, did over 40 presentations and national meetings. And I did all this work. Like you can imagine how much work that is, like thousands of hours of work towards this goal of becoming an academic. And then I realized that becoming an academic wasn't for me, that I missed my patients, that I missed those relationships one-on-one with the patient trying to help people. And that like spending time writing grants in front of a laptop wasn't good for me. So I left it. I like, I walked, I walked from all of that, all of that training, thousands of hours, years, the years that I had invested hard work, I, I walked away and now here I am. And like all of a sudden, all these things that I did all this extra training in this research training and this public speaking stuff and all that, all of a sudden it comes back. And it's like, oh my gosh, like I actually get to use this. I didn't really expect it. It's, just, it's like the irony of life. It's crazy. You never know where life is going to take you. I know. And what was the reaction when you walked away? What did your colleagues, friends, family, what did they say? People were very disappointed. Um, and by disappointed, I don't mean my family. I think that my family, you know, the, the people that are really close to you, they just want you to be happy. And so the people that were closest to me knew that that was what was going to make me happy because I'm a social person. Like I can't, you can't put me in a room with a computer and expect me to be okay for 12 hours. I can't do that. I had mentors that like are some of the most famous GI doctors in the country. And if you are one of them, you can imagine where just like having a child, when you have a mentee, when you have someone who's coming up, you want to groom them to be just like you. And that's part of your legacy. And so a guy like me comes along and these guys who are these famous GI doctors, they sign on because they believe, they believe in, in me. They believed in me. They really thought that, you know, I was going to do this. And when I decided that it wasn't the right choice for me, you know, that was, I think, a tough pill to swallow. But I have to say full credit to my mentors. Like my mentor at the University of North Carolina is literally the number one guy in the entire world for, for esophageal cancer prevention, which is what I was studying. And you know, I think that at the moment it was hard for him, but he has come around 100%. And this stuff that I'm doing now, I think is kind of like, you know, unless you're a pseudo, like I'm a pseudo millennial, I'm like three years removed from being a millennial. And so unless you're a millennial or a pseudo millennial, then you kind of don't really understand like what a podcast is or, or what Instagram is. And so I think like for a lot of my mentors at the University of North Carolina who are these like internationally famous academic doctors. It's kind of like, hey, what 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 is Bolsa doing? Like what is he doing? 
but I know that he, I actually know he's really proud of me. And so that's cool. Dr. B, you have no idea how much I can actually relate to your story on a different note because I grew up in Chapel Hill. So that's amazing. Honestly, one of the best places in the country. I look back on my childhood and I'm so grateful because I didn't appreciate it when I had it. I didn't realize how amazing it was. But my parents met at UNC um, and they got married. You know, my mom was in grad school and my dad was in undergrad. They met and they married and they had me. And we had like the perfectly, you know, great upbringing. And UNC was um, the most well respected. You know, we watched. Carolina basketball every time we could, you know, it was just such a wonderful place to grow up. And we had so much respect for UNC. And um, I went to University of North Carolina at Wilmington for college. My parents moved to the beach and my mom got cancer. We went to UNC hospital. We went to Duke and no one had an answer. No one had had a cure. They couldn't even determine what type of cancer it was. So, you know, usually you can figure out what the source is so that you have a treatment plan because it's colon or it's breast or whatever. Not one hospital or um, university or doctor could figure out what the cause was and therefore they had no treatment plan. So they just gave her um, whatever radiation chemotherapy they had on hand. Like I, I can't, I kid you not. Looking back, it's just a travesty. And so I was completely disillusioned because the place that I had looked up to for so long as this beacon of education and health and all of that failed us. And it was the most disappointing thing when you're like, these are the best places to take someone who is sick and they could not help my mother. And so it was, it was really, really heartbreaking. And, you know, I love Chapel Hill. I love Wilmington. I love North Carolina, but they at the time didn't have the answers. And now there are doctors like you who have gone to the next level of realizing like, Hey, there are other ways to heal. There are are nutrition and all of these things and all of the studies that you're talking about that I really want to delve into on this podcast for sure. And so I'm super happy about that. And that's all I want to talk about because I want people to know that they don't have to go through what she went through where there were no answers whatsoever. And of course she passed away in 2004 and then my father passed away in 2007 also of cancer. His was, they did find the cause, but they didn't have, you know, there was no cure at that point. His was liver, which was very clear the cause, but with my mother, there was no clear cause. And so it was very frustrating and they couldn't treat it. But my point is, is that now today, you know, that was 10, uh, 11 years ago, my father passed away. There is so much more information at our fingertips. People like you are on the forefront of gut health, which gut is our second brain. I fully believe that. And I know how important it is to heal our gut. And so what do you want to tell Food Heals Nation? Like, how can we start to heal from day one and heal our gut so that we can be the happiest, healthiest that we can be? I'm about to just uh, unpack a lot of stuff here. So there's so much that I would love to say to Food Heals Nation about gut health. And, you know, let me start off by saying this and just sort of frame the story here, which is that um, if you just rewind a little more than 10 years, like go back to 12 years, and we knew almost nothing about the microbiome which is the community of microorganisms that live inside of us. Um, We knew almost nothing. And we knew of approximately 200 species total of bacteria that live in and on the body at that point. Well, okay, now fast forward to 2018, and we know of at least 10,000 species right now. Estimates of 35,000. Imagine discovering 
9,800 species of animals all at once and trying to figure out what's going on. (laughs) That's so crazy. Okay. And that's kind of where we're at. And so the thing that changed the game for us was back around 2006, where we um, developed a laboratory technique. When I say we, obviously that doesn't include me. I was, I, that was the year that I graduated medical school, but um, a laboratory technique was developed that allowed us for the first time to measure these bacteria that live inside of us without actually culturing them, without growing them on some sort of plate. And so what we discovered blew our minds and no one really necessarily saw coming, which is that all health starts here. All health starts in the gut. We have this community of literally a hundred trillion microorganisms, and that does not include the viruses, but a hundred trillion microorganisms. And by most estimates, that is 10 times more microorganisms. And that includes bacteria and yeast, you know, potentially parasites, but really in the United States, there's not much of that. Um, and, And also these microorganisms called archaea that we know almost nothing about and that you can find literally miles under the ocean in rift vents, or you can find inside of a volcano and they live inside of us. This is so crazy. Oh my God. They've been around for 4 billion years and that actually predates oxygen on our planet. Like there wasn't oxygen, but these organisms were there. What? Yeah. And my mind uh, is so blown right now. (laughs) We know, and we know literally almost nothing about them, but what we do know is that we have this community of a hundred trillion microorganisms. Bacteria are the dominant ones, but also the fungi or yeast would be the same concept. Parasites, potentially not much in the United States. And then archaea, which most of us have. That is literally 10 times the number of human cells in your body. In other words, you're only 10% human. Oh my God. The rest of me is... I don't know what the word is. (laughs) 90% of your cell, cellular makeup is this stuff. Alien? Am I an alien? Well, this is (laughs) going back to like the intro. I'm like, this makes me think a lot more about like us as humans, because I think that we tend to think of ourselves as like, we are the dominant creature. We run this show, like we're in charge here, but these archaea, like we've been around for 3 million years and these archaea have been around for 4 billion years. And no matter what happens on this planet, no matter what, they're going to be okay. But I don't know that we are, you know right. what I mean? Yeah. And so I don't mean to be like morbid about it, but in, in all seriousness, and like we live in harmony with these microorganisms and we need them. We need them. They need us and we need them. And they've been a part of us since the very beginning of human evolution. And we evolved together. This was a partnership. And the problem is that here we are in the 20th century and we're kind of, we're bailing on them. The 21st century, we're bailing on them like both. You know, the last 100 years, we have been messing this up. We've been kicking them to the curb and not treating them with the kind of respect that they deserve. So we're bailing on them with our food environment, all of that. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, basically we have stopped, we have stopped taking care of this relationship with these microorganisms. Now us taking care of them happened by our nature because of our lifestyle that was largely unchanged during that entire course of human evolution over 3 million years. 
And then all of a sudden here we come through the industrial revolution and like people may not realize that it wasn't that long ago that we, we knew nothing about disease. Like it wasn't that long ago that we knew literally nothing. Go back to the time of the civil war in the United States. And that's when Louis Pasteur was over in France, basically studying. I mean, honestly, he was studying wine and he was studying milk. And he did these studies to discover that the cause of disease was bacteria. I mean, we take this for granted. Like this is common fact right now. They didn't know that. And at that time in the 1850s, the prevailing theory on disease was this concept of miasma, M-I-A-S-M-A, miasma. And this is like borderline, I don't know, like paranormal activity or like paranormal state or one of the cheesy TV shows that's on Friday night at like 10 o'clock. Like this is like weird, creepy stuff where they thought that if you walk by the swamp and you see a mist and you smell something funny, that it's going to give you the plague. Oh my God. I just Googled it while you were speaking and Wikipedia calls it an obsolete medical therapy that held that diseases such as chlorella, chlamydia, or the black death were caused by a miasma, which is bad air, also known as night air. <laughs> you should post the picture on the show notes because it's terrifying. That's, it's like, yes, it is you're creepy. looking at it right now, right? Yes. It's so creepy. <laughs> it's really creepy. And so anyway, so that was the prevailing theory. So we knew literally nothing. And, you know, fast forward to the early 1900s, the beginning of the 20th century. And that's when we started to figure out ways to actually take these bacteria and control them in a way that they won't kill us. Because at that point in, uh, in human history, that was the number one cause of death. The number one cause of death was pneumonia or some sort of infection, tuberculosis. And so this was what was killing people were these infections. And Pasteur put it together that bacteria cause infection. And then we spent the next basically 50 years starting to figure out ways that we could control these bacteria and remove them from our life. And so we started, for example, adding chlorine to our water and that got rid of cholera. And that was a great thing because cholera was killing people. And so we add chlorine to our water and we start figuring out how to preserve our food without fermentation. We start figuring out how to can our food and then we create preservatives that make it so that you can put into a package and just put it on a shelf in a store and start figuring out how to process our food. And we, we create powerful chemicals that maybe we use to produce crops or we create powerful chemicals that help us to clean our home or that we use in the shower. And, you know, and then we create penicillin and like, let me say this before I go and bash on antibiotics, the greatest breakthrough in medical history was the discovery of penicillin. Mm, okay. And I don't know that anyone could really argue that because when they discovered penicillin, it was in world war II, and they instantly added 15 years to our life expectancy. Wow. Instantly. And there has never been a breakthrough like that. And I really don't think that during our lifetime, you and I will see anything like that. I that's mean, 15 amazing. years, that's huge, right? That's in, huge. In the scale of things. That's absolutely huge. So this was a great thing. And the problem is that with every great thing, you don't necessarily know what the consequences are. Um, it may make certain things better in the short term, but you, if you don't realize it, you may be paying a price in the long term. And so that's the issue is that 
going back to 2006, I don't know that we really fully understood this well enough, the dynamics of how important these bacteria, these microorganisms are. And we took them for granted as if like we knew that there was obviously a microbiome and we made poop jokes. We laughed at them. You know what right. I mean? Yeah, for years. Like, is there anything that has less value on the planet than poop, at least in 2006? It's like the least valuable thing on the planet. And then we start to discover these things about the microbiome. And let me just break this down real quick for your listeners. To me, all health starts in the gut. All health starts in the gut. It controls your metabolism. Um, It controls the way that you process your food. Let me give you a crazy example that is just kind of mind crippling. If you take an obese mouse and you do a transplant of the microbiome, basically by taking the poop from that obese mouse and you transfer it over to a thin mouse and you literally change nothing about the thin mouse, you change nothing. You give it the exact same food and it is completely controlled. It eats all the food, same calories the thin mouse becomes obese. Oh my God. If you take a thin mouse and you transplant the microbiome from an obese human, the thin mouse becomes obese. Wow. This is so crazy. So you know people who can eat whatever they want and they don't get fat and we all hate them. (laughs) Yes, we do. And those people probably have a healthy microbiome. And then there's people who struggle and they do their best And it's so hard to lose weight. And our studies make it very clear that damage to the gut microbiome can cause obesity. And so the microbiome controls our metabolism. It uh, actually is in constant communication with our immune system. So 70% of your immune system is in your gut and constantly talking to each other. I mean, it's like, imagine that there's two house parties right next to each other and there's the dinkiest offenses in between. There is literally a single layer of cells, single layer that is a fraction of the diameter of a hair from your head that separates your gut bacteria from 70% of your immune system. And it's very clear that if you damage the gut, you damage the immune system. Right. Damage to the gut, which we use a medical term called dysbiosis, D-Y-S-B-I-O-S-I-S. And I, by the way, I would argue when you hear people talking about leaky gut, like sometimes leaky gut gets off into stuff that's like pseudoscience and there's no real backing to it. But a lot of it is pretty darn factually accurate. And when they're talking about leaky gut, I would just characterize it differently. I think that we're talking about the same thing, but to me, dysbiosis is the correct word to use to describe that. Damage to the gut bacteria has been associated with Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis. Like go down the line, there's all of these different autoimmune conditions that have been associated. And look at what's happening in our society today. There is an explosion of autoimmune disease, like an explosion. It's insane. It's out of control. This is the reason why. This is part of the reason why. Our gut actually regulates our mood, regulates our, it regulates our impulses, it controls anxiety, it controls depression. And the reason why is because 95% of serotonin is produced in the gut, 95%. Serotonin is the happy hormone. Like if I want to treat someone for depression, I could give them Prozac and Prozac raises serotonin levels, but it's not raising serotonin levels 
exclusively in the brain, only 5% of serotonin is in the brain. It's also raising serotonin levels in the gut. And what's interesting, if you have any listeners, I'm sure that you do, because this is so prevalent in our society, who have irritable bowel syndrome, IBS. I mean, there are still some old school doctors who haven't caught up to like the modern science. Um, but let me just say that like, I feel bad for people that have IBS because number one, they're suffering. And number two, people act like it's like, hey, you're crazy. You know, like you're so neurotic. This is the, the way that some doctors used to think that you're so neurotic or you're so anxious that you actually make yourself sick with diarrhea or you make yourself sick with constipation. And now here we are. And through this, these scientific breakthroughs, we now see that there's serotonin. 95% of the serotonin is in the gut. It controls our mood. It makes someone neurotic or anxious if it's out of whack. And at the same time, why is 95% of serotonin in the gut? The answer is that serotonin controls motility. So if serotonin controls motility and it's like popping off too fast, then you get diarrhea. And the serotonin that's not being stimulated on an adequate level causes constipation. So these people who have dysregulation of serotonin inside their gut develop alteration of their bowel habits, diarrhea or constipation. It can change sensitivity within the gut. They develop pain and then they have alteration of their ability to deal with stressful situations. They get anxiety and that's IBS. And this is the reason why it's not because they're, it doesn't start up top. It starts down below and down below is communicating to the brain. I really, really, really appreciate the way that you just laid that out because for so long we've been talking about how the gut is the second brain and how important it is. But the way that you just laid that out really makes sense and I really appreciate it. And I know um, myself, I have suffered from gut issues and I know Food Heals Nation listeners have suffered from gut issues. Even one of our favorite co-hosts, um, Whitney Lauritsen has suffered from gut issues and I was going to bring her on because she had some questions for you. And I think this is a great segue to go into like, what do we do now? Now we know, and how can we move into the healing phase? What can we do to heal our gut? And so I would love to welcome Whitney. Whitney, are you here? I am. Welcome Whitney. Whitney is the eco vegan gal and creator of creative wealth. Hey Whitney, how are you? I'm great. Wealth. how are you? Good. I'm so excited to chat with you about this because it's something that I'm very curious about. And I have spent a lot of years trying to figure out what's going on with my gut and how to really optimize it. And uh, I still feel in the dark. <laughs> and I feel like um, I'm doing, you know, so many different, different things. Yeah, I'm just really curious on your on your perspective. Let's get it figured out. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, hopefully this will help uh, a lot of people that are listening out there who are struggling with the same things. I think for me, I, I discovered about 10 years ago that I had what I think are food sensitivities. I've, you know, it's, it's really tricky because I've gone to a lot of doctors and for years they didn't even suggest that. So I kind of came to my own conclusion. And, uh, when I took certain foods out of my diet, I, there was such a massive improvement. And I noticed things like lower inflammation and more energy and easier time digesting and weight loss, a lot of effects that made me think that there had to be something going on in my gut. And perhaps I had been feeding my body foods that 
it wasn't responding well to for most of my life. Uh, that would ju- that's kind of just my idea of what was happening there. And I, I often wonder if I have had poor gut health my entire life or since early childhood, because that would have explained a lot of the things that I struggled with. So I'm just kind of curious, can you be born with gut issues or is it very common for kids to develop them at younger ages and have it affect them their whole lives? There is so much that I want to talk to you about right now. Um, <laughs> Great. I don't, even know, I don't even know where to start, but <laughs> like, let me ask you a question. Honestly, do you yeah. want, would you prefer for me to, I really want to take you through the way the gut develops and you maybe you, if you want to, you can tell us at the end, whether or not anything is touching a nerve for you on whether or not it could affect you. Whatever, whatever flow works best for Allison. Go for it. I mean, I just want to help people. So this is wonderful. Okay. All right. So we, Whitney, before you jumped on the air with us, we were breaking down like the role, the, the central role that the gut plays in our health, how it controls our metabolism, our immune system. It affects our mood, our impulses, the way that we feel. It actually regulates our genes, by the way. And there's other things too, but just to move forward with this, I really want, because I would imagine that y'all have a ton of awesome female listeners. And I want to talk about gut health as it relates to raising kids and making kids that have a healthy gut. And so here's what's cool. And then I'm probably going to backtrack in a minute. But when a child is born, the gut is almost sterile. And the baby comes through like during a vaginal delivery through mom's birth canal. And that is mom's first gift to this child, which is to inoculate the baby with the bacteria that is there in the birth canal. And what is absolutely fascinating is that during late in the third trimester of pregnancy, around 35 or 36 weeks, see, we have different uh, sort of, I would characterize them as ecosystems throughout our body. Like there's a microbiome in our mouth and there's a microbiome in our gut and there's a microbiome in our skin. And of course, for women, there's a microbiome in the vagina. And so around 35 or 36 weeks, this is what's crazy. Mom's vaginal microbiome changes to resemble her gut microbiome. Wow. Oh my gosh. Cool. I've so never that when this. the baby passes through the birth canal, baby picks up bacteria, basically supercharged probiotics that mother nature created through 3 million years of evolution. Baby picks that up and passes through. And that's the start of the microbiome for the child. And I don't know if y'all have kids, but during the first couple weeks, when you have kids, their poop doesn't smell. Mm-hmm. I've heard that actually. Very strange. <laughs> so interesting. <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. so it's the development of the microbiome over the course of those weeks that makes it so that they're starting to process mom's milk or whatever they're given in a different way so that their poop starts to actually smell like poop because it's now being processed by bacteria within their gut. So from a day that a child is born to somewhere between two to three years of age, they go from almost sterile to a fully formed adult size microbiome. Wow. And so the entire foundation is built during this period of time. So it's very important that the baby be born by vaginal delivery, if at all possible. 
Now, let me say this, like before I'm, I know that there's going to be women who are listening to this that are going to be feel super concerned or maybe even like remorseful that they had a C-section. I have two kids. They were both born by C-section. Like things happen. You have to do what's the right thing during your pregnancy and you can have healthy children despite having C-section, but it is preferable. It is preferable to have a vaginal delivery if you can. And then where I think the money is, where we're really, really missing the point as a society is on breastfeeding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are pediatricians that will tell you to breastfeed for six months and cut it off. It's crazy. What do you recommend? There is no more perfect food for an infant than breast milk. Yeah. Okay. That, is been, that has been forged through 3 million years of evolution And if you guys are digging the crazy stuff that I've been telling you, get ready because I got another one right now. Okay. (laughs) Breast milk contains something called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. HMOs has literally zero nutritional value for the baby. Zero. Like I'm I'm not missaying that. It is zero nutritional value to the baby. It does nothing for the baby. Yet mom's breast milk has over a hundred different types of these HMOs. Why? Because this is food for bacteria in the gut. Whoa. So in other words, okay. we evolved so that mom would produce breast milk that feeds the bacteria in the baby. Wow. This is Those so those are cool. prebiotics. Those are prebiotics. So P-R-E, biotics, as opposed to probiotics. Yes. Okay. And so if you're asking me, like, how long should we breastfeed for? As long as you can. I know people that go four years and then they're like shunned by society, but they're like, no, this is the healthiest thing I can do. How effed up are we as a society that we're not (laughs) celebrating those moms? Yeah. Like that shows a complete level of ignorance that we are not applauding those moms for doing literally the best thing that they could possibly do for their child. Yeah. And then there's all these people that think that you're harming your child by doing that. And you, you know, the kid's becoming too dependent on you or it's a strange thing and it's, it is really backwards and it makes you just wonder why we have so many gut issues. It could be from things like that. It totally could. And let me tell you that I am, I'm going to give a shout out to my amazing wife right now who breastfed both of our children to two years and she never, and she never stopped because she set some deadline. She stopped because basically uh, she got pregnant again. And so it changed and she couldn't do that. But anyway, uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that my two kids have never had antibiotics. Mm, Amazing. Wow. I grew up on antibiotics. So that's amazing. Like I grew up taking them every six months all the time. All right, Food Heals Nation, we're coming to the end of January, and I still believe that 2019 is the year that we can all up-level and do things differently. This is the year you can rise and bloom in your business. Take it from Marina from Soul in the Raw and Alana from Sprouts and Krauts. Here is what they both had to say. Roll it, Roxy. Hi, my name is Alana Halden, and I'm excited to tell you a little bit about my recent experience with Allison Melody's Rise and Bloom Mastermind. I'm a vegan chef, and I recently started a food blog called Sprouts and Krauts. After designing my website, getting it up and running, and starting to create content, I quickly came to a standstill. I realized I didn't really know how to actually get my message out there and reach my intended audience. 
which got frustrating pretty quickly. Around that time, I happened to hear about Rise and Bloom, and I feel so lucky that I did. It was an amazing experience to take part in, and I feel like I came away with it with so many more tools and strategies that I can now implement in my business. From Instagram strategies, sponsorships, and sales funnels, to email lists, online courses, and podcasts, Allison has a wealth of information to share. And on top of her own expertise, she also brought in several experts to really delve into other areas like Facebook advertising strategies and how to write and self-publish your own books. So to anyone thinking about signing up for the upcoming Rise and Bloom Mastermind, I would highly recommend it. Hi, my name is Marina and I am a plant-based health coach and blogger at Soul in the Raw and I participated in Ali's mastermind that just ended and I'm so excited to do the next one. Um, I am a very skeptical person. I don't enroll in things easily and I was actually on Ali's podcast so I saw that she was doing the mastermind and I was like and then I asked her a million questions and who's going to be in there and what are you going to do and all these things and I had no idea what it was going to be like but I had a weird intuition that it's a good thing to do and seriously I don't spend money easily but I had this intuition so I had to enroll and I did and it was incredible and that's why I'm so excited for the next one because I learned so much and the general vibe that I get from Allie is that she knows what she's talking about. It's not just, you know, all these crazy strategies because honestly, I've been around for four years in my business and I always hear about this strategy and that strategy and, you know, these shortcuts and, you know, that you can do and that is not how it was. I felt like every suggestion that she had and every lesson that she taught us and she taught so much it was like non-stop information but so productive was so effective and efficient it was all about optimizing the things that you're doing to get the most out of it which is so awesome and she's also such a wonderful person I feel like whenever one of us needed help she was always there she was always sharing her resources and what worked for her and her awesome successful business so it was freaking amazing and I cannot recommend it enough for any of you to join the next one please join us it's so worth it it's so much fun and it's also so fun just getting to know all the participants that are doing it and learning from each other so can't recommend this enough and I hope that you enroll Oh, I love these girls so much. Seriously, our last mastermind meant so much to me. And I know it meant so much to the other women as well. Guys, you're invited too. It just so happens our last one was all ladies. But anyone's invited to join us, just email me at info at foodhealsnation.com. I'll get you all signed up. All right, back to my interview with Dr. B. You're listening to the Food Heals Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Okay, so... Um, in adults, let me tell you what happens when we take antibiotics. So we're coming back to this now, Ellie, after I started to bash them a little bit, now I'm really going to bash them. So, <laughs> um, and, and I, and I will like kind of even this out a little bit at the end, but when you take antibiotics, like take the antibiotic Cipro, which I am sure that you have a ton of listeners who have taken Cipro for a urinary tract infection or something else. Okay. Yeah. 
Especially because, you know, urinary tract infections and yeast infections are so common. So common. You think of how often people, women are taking these things. Like, I don't know if they take them for yeast infections as well, but it's just like, this is so common for women. So yeast infection is related to a weakness in the gut microbiome, to be honest right. with you. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So if you take, so our data is very clear. If you take five days of Cipro, which by the way, it's usually prescribed for much longer than that, typically seven to 14. Mm-hmm. You take five days of Cipro, it is going to knock out 35% of the bacteria in your gut. Oh. Now, that that like by itself is a slap in the face, but it gets worse. The 65% that are left behind, those are not the ones that you want running the show. Right. And they're going to flourish and they're going to have a dominant influence in your gut from that day forward. Oh, my God. That is the, those are the Cipro-resistant bugs. Yeah, and they they're are going to be. Party. They're having a party and they are, they are, they are growing and expanding as fast as they can to take over after the good guys. Well, not necessarily just the good guys, but I guess the bottom line is that when you take antibiotics, there is no precision. You can't just, there's good bacteria and there's bad bacteria and most of them are good. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are good. And there's no precision. You're just napalming. You know what I mean? You're just napalming your gut and you're hoping that you get enough of the bad guys that, okay, the infection's gone. But now here you are, you wiped out 35% of the bacteria, 65% that are, that are resistant, that are now dominating. And then here's the other issue that's huge. Our studies show us that although your numbers may grow back up, your gut will never be the same. Yep. And it will take years to remodel itself to get back to where it was before five days of antibiotics. Thank you, Dr. V, for telling us this, because this is what I believe. I think this is what happened to me. Whitney, I'm not sure if this is what happened to you. When I was growing up, every six months, I had what they called at the time tonsillitis. I would be on antibiotics yes. for two, two weeks every six months. It was like clockwork. It was always on my birthday in December and always once in the summer. It was so crazy. I think I destroyed my gut at, at, a, at a young age, and I don't think it's ever fully recovered. And I eat the fermented foods, and I take my probiotics and my prebiotics, but Dr. B, what do we do when we've destroyed our guts? You know, good question. Yeah. It's your question. It's our question. You know, I'm bringing you guys back. We're getting you better tonight. Okay. So, but (laughs) it's happening. It's happening. This is, this is going to happen. So, but first, um, let me just say this. I just want to hammer home this point with kids. Okay. You know, this is it. So just to hammer this home, like this is an intensely vulnerable period of time from zero to two to three years of age. Okay. Yeah. And what we see is that if you deviate from nature's course, C-section, bottle feeding, antibiotics, all three result in the exact same outcomes in studies. Childhood obesity, increased allergic type issues, increased autoimmune type issues, and potentially even, this is a lot harder to study, a lot harder to prove because you're talking about extremely rare events. So it's hard to really tie it together in a way that's completely clean, but potentially also higher risk of cancer. And so, and it just goes back to what we were talking about, Ali, before, which is controls your metabolism, controls your immune system, controls your mood, controls your genetic expression. All health starts in the gut. So, all right, what do we do to make our gut healthy? Well, here's what's cool. And this is what I'm excited to talk to you guys about because this is Food Heals Podcast. There's a dude at the University of California, San Diego, who is like, this guy is my hero. 
Um, I have such respect for him because he is changing the game. Like he's changing our understanding of health and disease. Okay. And his name is Rob Knight. So should I interview him? Obviously. <laughs> if you could. Okay. If you could. Yeah. And so, so his name is Rob Knight okay. and this dude is brilliant and he's a, he's a laboratory researcher and he started something a few years ago called the American gut project. And so the American gut project is where basically anywhere in the country, you can go to their website, americangutproject.org, and they will ship you a kit. And basically you give them a stool specimen and you fill out a survey. And I think it costs 89 bucks. Not bad. And they are going to tell you what your microbiome looks like. Wow. Okay, cool. So, but what's cool is that as part of this, you are actually cataloging your data you know, um, anonymously into a database that they use to study, to understand the American gut, like what is the microbiome in the United States and what affects or influences the microbiome? Cause you fill out the survey telling them about your lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Cause that's how they're going to get the data that can actually move the needle and, ch- and, and lead to sustainable change. This is how you get the data. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. And so in May of 2017, at the biggest GI meeting of the year, biggest meeting in the world, Digestive Disease Week, Rob Knight comes to the podium and the thing that he wants to do is answer the question, what is the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut? And I want to tell you, I have no clue what Rob Knight eats, but I can tell you for a fact that I do not think that there was one bit of agenda or bias, that this was literally, this is a man of science. And he is doing his science to answer these questions. Yep. Okay. And what do you guys think? Do anyone, anyone want to guess on what was the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut? Well, you told us the three things like the breastfeeding and all of that. So I'm guessing it's not one of those or is it one of those? No, those are good, but those okay. are not, those are not the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut in adulthood. I'm going to guess eating less like um, calorie restriction. What are you going to guess, Whitney? Hmm. I'm so curious about your perspective on uh, fasting because that's been coming such a, a big trend right now. One guess is either fasting or calorie restriction. Whitney, do you have I one? Know, I'm trying to think. <laughs> All right. You ready? Can I bring it? It is the diversity of the plants that you eat. Yay! We're Ooh. vegan! Woo! We win! <laughs> Whitney, the single win. greatest predictor of the health of the microbiome is the diversity of the plants that you eat. And this makes complete sense because when we study the microbiome, there are a lot of inputs and influence into how your microbiome looks and how healthy it is. And yes, fasting can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. And there's other things too. Sleeping can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. Exercise can contribute to a healthy gut microbiome. But at the end of the day, the single greatest determinant of the makeup of your gut is the food that you eat. If you tell me what you eat, I can tell you what your microbiome looks like. If you show me what your microbiome looks like, I can tell you what you're eating. How long does it take for your body to reflect those changes? So let's just say today you say you decide that you're going to have a lot more plants and you're going to eat a diverse selection of plants. How long will it take for that to affect your gut in a serious way? The gut is changing right, like literally right this second in all of us, all your listeners at home, it is changing right this second. 
And so if you consume a salad for lunch, um, there will be changes in your gut microbiome over the course of the next few hours after that salad based upon what was in that salad. But that being said, that is different. Like those, those are ebbs and flows. Those are waves, but that's not the tide. At the end of the day, there is a core foundation. There is a makeup of the gut microbiome that is uniquely you and that is as different or as unique as your fingerprint. There is no one in the world who has a microbiome exactly like yours, including other vegans. They may be very similar, but theirs is different. And so, and there's a core foundation or structure that can be changed, but it takes time, like potentially years to really change. And so when people go to make dietary changes and they struggle with it, for example, people that make radical dietary changes and they just like, okay, like it's January 1st, here I go, right. <laughs> whole 30, you know what I mean? Like whole 30, yeah. yeah. The, the problem is that you're shocking the system. Like that's not what your gut was built to eat. Your gut was built to eat whatever you were eating before. The best thing to do is to adapt and give it time and make the changes over the course of time and give your body a chance to keep up with what you're doing. So let's go back to the question of food sensitivities. And I'm sure you guys would agree with me. There are way more food sensitivities in 2018 than there were 20 years ago. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I I think the awareness is growing too, because like I said, when I was trying to figure out why I was having the reactions I was having, that didn't even come up. They tested me for allergies, which I don't think I have any. At the time, doctors were not talking, at least to me as a patient, about food sensitivities. Well, most of them will not, honestly. Most of them will not. So, And the issue is that, first of all, we have to separate out food allergies from food sensitivities. A food allergy causes activation of the immune system which can lead to lip swelling, hives, throat closing, you know, that's a different reaction than someone who develops bloating, abdominal distension, diarrhea, constipation, abdominal discomfort. That's a sensitivity. That's what we're talking about. And for me, there's definitely, I don't have the allergic reaction, but in addition to the list of other things you just mentioned about sensitivities, I also, my main symptom with food is that I, it's all my sinuses and doctors were n- never able to figure out why I was having that. But when I took certain foods out of my diet, all those sinus issues went away. And that goes back to the fact that 70% of your immune system is in your gut. And so when you control the gut, then you have better control over the immune system, including allergic type issues like that. And so, but The challenge with food sensitivities, and I apologize because what I'm going to say, I think is going to sound very different than probably what you guys have heard in other places. Okay, let's hear it. The the challenge with food sensitivities is that, I'll say this, like elimination is not the solution. Mm. Because the problem is, because you will have short-term gain, when you eliminate, you will experience short-term gain, but our studies make it very clear that there will be long-term loss. And there's a reason why. The number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of the plants that you eat. If you eliminate foods, what is happening to the diversity of the plants that you eat? It's being reduced. Right. You're, You're restricting the diversity and our diversity as a culture in the United States, we're creatures of habit. 
And so our diversity comparable to prior generations, if you go back over the last couple hundred years, is actually pathetically low. You would think that we have better access to food because we have such industry, but our, the actual diversity of the food that most Americans are eating is incredibly low. And so I think about it this way. Here's the analogy that I would use to try to encourage people to not eliminate. And I want to try to explain this and unpack this because it's complicated. And I want people to really understand where I'm coming from with this because I understand that I'm coming from a funny place saying something different than most people probably are saying. I would compare it to your gut being a muscle. Pretend that you are a weightlifter and you break your arm and your arm goes into a cast for six months and you remove that cast and now you have an atrophic weak arm and you're so used to going to the gym and picking up the 40 pound dumbbell and ripping off curls. And I don't even know if you can do 15 pounds right now. And if you try to push yourself too hard, too fast, you're going to hurt yourself. So that doesn't mean that you shouldn't go to the gym. That doesn't mean that you should throw in the towel on that. Yeah, you could stay at home and not work out and you're not going to hurt yourself by not working out. You're also not going to make yourself stronger. So you're a fan of the slow changing. You need slow changes. So you go back to the gym and you might start off with a weight that seems pathetically small relative to who you used to be. But you, you go to that weight and you do it until you're ready to move up to the next weight and you just have to work with your body and allow it to adapt to what you're doing. It's almost like you're recommending that you have a personal trainer for your gut. <laughs> I feel like most of us do not know this information. And you know, as you're saying this, I'm thinking of, I would love to eat the foods that I've had reactions to. I really miss them. And I've tried having them. And every time I have them, I get a reaction. I have tried different amounts and all that. And I, it's just that ongoing frustration of, well, I guess I can't have this food anymore. And you're right. It does limit the diversity of, of what I'm consuming. So it's like, as you're giving this analogy of going to the gym and working out, you think, wow, if only I had somebody that would tell me exactly how much of this food to have and when to have it so that I can w build up my, my gut strength and maybe be able to have it again. I wish that it was easy. And if I were your personal gut trainer and like literally sleeping on your couch and hanging out and <laughs> we're drinking wine like all the time, if I were that person, I still wouldn't be able to tell you what that is because you're the person who's in touch with your own body. Mm. And maybe that's the big thing is so many people are out of touch with their bodies. Yeah. Well, you need, yeah. And so I would encourage you to tap into how you feel, but let me like, think about it this way. Like you, I know you guys don't drink dairy and I don't drink dairy either, but if someone who drinks milk and is lactose intolerant, there is an, there is an amount of milk that I could put onto their tongue and they swallow and they're not going to get diarrhea. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can, I can take, I can take like a medicine dropper and put three drops of milk on their tongue and they're not going to get diarrhea from that. Sure. It's the amount of milk that they consume at once that overwhelms the system and leads to symptoms because they're not capable of processing that. Right. And that's so true. I've noticed that with, with those foods I'm sensitive to, I've noticed a huge difference in the amounts that I have and how I react to them. Totally. And it starts, it starts with first identifying where the problem lies. And so you guys, I'm sure have heard about the low FODMAP diet. Yeah. What about the low histamine as well, which I feel like isn't talked about as much, but I've, I've had some success using that diet as well. So the low FODMAP diet is built on the principle that there's parts of our food that are fermented 
and the fermentation can trigger symptoms in the gut. Now, I will tell you that many times the parts of our food that are fermented are actually the healthiest parts of our food. Sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so in many cases, it's a mistake to not have adequate amounts of these foods or to get rid of them. And the reason why I'd say the things that I do is not just based upon Rob Knight speaking at the podium in this one this one presentation. No, 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 no. There's a lot more data to support what I'm saying. People who do the low FODMAP diet and eliminate foods, our studies are very clear. It damages the microbiome. Wow. And so the way that the low FODMAP diet is meant to be used, which is not the way that most people are using it right now. In fact, not even the way that most doctors are recommending it. And it's wrong. It's, it shows a misunderstanding of, the, of this tool. The way that it's meant to be used is that you use this list of foods which contain FODMAPs to help you to identify what your food triggers are. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Got yeah. And then when you have a list of your food triggers now you are ready to start to tinker. And how you go about doing that is a personal choice. If you want to temporarily eliminate a food and just tinker with one thing at a time, I'm okay with that. But the the point from my perspective is that when you have this list of foods that trigger symptoms, don't get rid of them. What you have to do is you have to start to reintroduce them because the problem is that dysbiosis, damage to the gut microbiome is what got you, I don't mean like you personally, I just mean this theoretical person. It's what got this theoretical person to this place to begin with. And to restrict those foods is to worsen and further the dysbiosis to make the gut even weaker. So let me um, say a scenario and tell me if I'm right or wrong. So if I discover on my own account that I am gluten sensitive and I decide to go gluten free, it is more damaging to be gluten free than it is to just be gluten light, like gluten very, very little gluten. So with the caveat that if you have celiac disease, you need to be 100% pure gluten-free. The microbiome studies are again, suggesting that people that go gluten-free cause damage to their gut microbiome. And the reason why is we're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. If you think about gluten, It comes from three sources, wheat, barley, and rye. Now, when was the last time that you picked up wheat, barley, and rye and put it into your mouth in whole form? Like, honestly, no one does. It's always processed food. It's always processed food. But there can be minimally processed wheat, barley, and rye that are considered whole grains. And those are some of the most powerful, fertile things for feeding a healthy gut. But when you process your food, the way that I think about it is take any food, take kale, like take the healthiest food on the planet, whatever you think it is, I'll use kale and process it. And it's going to lose nutrients and it's going to gain whatever stuff it is that you're using to process it, additives, chemicals, preservatives. And at some point it crosses the line and it stops being healthy and it starts being unhealthy. And so this is the issue with gluten-containing foods is that a huge part of them are refined grains that are super processed and they come in a package that's not just the gluten, but includes all of these other things that I don't think we should be consuming anyway. Like you want to eliminate stuff. I say eliminate processed food. I say eliminate dairy and I say eliminate animal products because our microbiome studies don't show us in any way that you need those things. But what they do show us is that the closer that you are to being a vegan, 
the healthier gut is going to be. And I say that independent of Rob Knight, there are studies that show us that basically the microbiome is a spectrum and that there's actually a difference between a vegan and a vegetarian in terms of the microbiome. And there are benefits to being the vegan as opposed to the vegetarian. Whitney, we went That's what we like to hear. (laughs) To me, what's cool about this is like, okay, the science is for the first time allowing us to understand these things that we always thought were the truth, but we didn't really know for sure. And you take the blue zones. Yes, I love the blue zones. All right. Yes. So Dan Buettner, for your listeners at home who haven't read this book, Dan Buettner had like the coolest job in America where he was a modern day explorer for National Geographic. And he asked a very simple question like 12 years ago, which was, who are the healthiest people on the planet and what are they doing? And for the first time, because it was a global world and we actually had information on different cultures, he was able to, uh, to actually carry out this, you know, I, I mean, I would characterize it as a study, but I don't know that he meant it to be that. And he identified these five locations in the world where people are the healthiest, they live the longest, and they live to be 100 years old at a rate that's off the charts, free of disease, free of the disease that you see in the United States. I know. I love the Blue Zones. It's so cool. And so it's Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. It's Sardinia, actually up in the mountains off the coast of Italy. It's Ikaria, Greece, Okinawa, Japan. And the last one, Loma Linda. my favorite, Loma Linda, California. <laughs> right on the, the Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's right here in our own country. The Seventh-day Adventists, their theology teaches them that they're going to come back to inhabit their own body. And so they live a lifestyle that's designed to nurture and take care of their body because they have such respect for it because they believe faithfully that they're going to come back to re-inhabit it. And guess what? They live 10 years longer than the average American on average. Wow. Yeah. 10 years longer. And what are all these blue zones doing? They're all 90 plus percent plant-based. Yep. Vegetarian. And they're wine at five. They drink wine at five. That's my favorite. There you go. That's it. <laughs> oh my gosh. This has been so informative. Dr. B, can you come back? I know. I think that's going to have to happen because I have like a long list of questions. I know. <laughs> Do you want me to bust out TRE real quick before we, before we go? Do you want me to bust out on fasting real quick? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Cause you guys asked, so we got to go there, right? Yeah. So, and if you happen to be able to give a perspective of on keto, keto vegan and fasting, fasting, that's what we're playing. Yeah. On. We're very, we're both very curious about the, those three diets combined. <laughs> keto and fasting. Okay. Well, first let me say this, the data on fasting are very exciting, but there is certainly a lot of room for us to study in humans. Okay. Mm. So most of what we know is taken from animal models and it's, it's not fair to automatically assume that it's going to be the exact same thing in us humans. Okay. Sure. Yeah. But I really think that this is legit. What we see with fasting of different varieties is that it reduces your risk for diabetes. It lowers your cholesterol. It strengthens your microbiome and it causes weight loss. Done and done. Okay. (laughs) So, and there's different terms and many people use the word intermittent fasting quite liberally, but here's to me what intermittent fasting means. Intermittent fasting means that you pick days, specific days during the week, meaning intermittently like, okay, Tuesday and Saturday or whatever, whatever you choose. 
And you're going to fast on those days of whatever duration and intensity and form that you choose. That's intermittent fasting. Whereas time-restricted eating is a lifestyle. Time-restricted eating is the choice that you are going to limit the period of time by which you eat to a certain number of hours during the day. And what the studies are showing us is that this is part of our circadian biology. This is, we are built to, you know, wake up at a certain time. Frankly, when the sun comes up, we are built to start to shut it down at a certain time, frankly, when the sun goes down. And that's the way that our body is designed. By the way, it's serotonin that surges in the morning that gives us our energy when we wake up and also makes us very focused in the morning for people that are that have noticed that they're very focused and able to get a lot done first thing in the morning. And so time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting, but I, I like to focus on time-restricted eating, taps into our natural circadian biology and allows us to give the gut a break. Mm-hmm. Again, going back to the exercise analogy, if I work out my chest today, am I better off working out my chest again tomorrow or am I better off taking three days off and then working out my chest? The answer is you got to give it a break. And so our culture is not designed based upon science. Our culture is designed based upon convenience and we eat three times a day and we're, we're basically slamming our gut yeah. three times a day. We never give our gut a break. We never give our ex- people that love to exercise. They never give the muscles time to heal. I mean, I'm generalizing, but like that's like modern, right? Like that's modern go, go, go. It really gets in the way of us tuning into ourselves. Exactly. And I've been experimenting with time-restrictive eating, and, which I will now call it. Thank you for <laughs> <laughs> giving, giving it a good name. Yeah, uh, I'm so new to all of this, but I, I experimented with it. And it's amazing that the longer I've been doing it, the more I don't eat unless I'm I'm really hungry versus in the past I would just feel like I was either eating out of boredom or eating because, because it sounded it's exciting or convenience so yeah fun social like all these different things and now uh, today actually was a breakthrough day for me where I I realized I I just didn't want to eat that much and I was surrounded by people eating food and my whole experience of food has shifted over the course of just a few weeks of experimenting with this and I just feel more in tune with myself and it's pretty amazing. The key too is that you may need to ease into it. So we have studies from animal models that suggest that the longer that the break is that you take, the better. So like 14 hours is better than 12, 16 is better than 14. Okay. But your body is built to operate a certain way and your gut and the microbiome is in tune to your circadian rhythm. So for example, if I fly from LA back to Charleston on the red eye and I'm kind of jet lagged, you know what I mean? That sensation of jet lag is actually driven by the gut being thrown off by the fact that you're not on your normal rhythm. And so you need to basically ease into this in a way where you transition towards extending that period because your body needs that opportunity to adapt to what you're doing. I mean, I want to do a whole podcast about this. <laughs> yeah, me too, for sure. You know who you need to get on, honestly? The world's expert is out your way. He's in San Diego. Okay, done. And his name is Sachin Panda. Ooh, that's a great name. He's got a cool name. <laughs> so, and he's, and what's cool about him is I've listened to him on other podcasts and he is like a true academic. And so he, he's not like 
promoting an agenda or like he's trying to convince people to live the lifestyle that he thinks is right. He's just like literally telling you like, he's like, I'm in a lab. I did an experiment and this is what I found. No. And I appreciate that because that's what we want to know. A lot of times, um, especially, you know, doing what I do, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I don't have the training. And people say, where's the study behind that? Or where's the science behind that? And I say, I can't answer because I'm not the person that did the study or researched the study. I'm just the person that was on the podcast that learned about the study. And I want to share it with everyone. But I want to have as many people on the show as possible that can be the proof that can be, you know, tell us what's really happening, what's really going on so that everyone can make that change and make it with confidence that it's backed by reality, backed by science, backed by experiment, backed by getting people getting better. Totally. And I have two quick comments that I just really feel compelled to make, which is that first of all, science on any level, whether you are the scientist conducting the experiment or whether you are the person interpreting the science is never meant to be conducted with the end results decided before you actually go into it. Thank you. Yes. You have to allow the science to guide you. So my path to becoming plant-based was not because I decided a priori that I was going to be plant-based. The things that I'm teaching to your listeners tonight, 100%, this is the science. 100%. This is not me coming to you as a plant-based GI doctor and telling you, yeah, this is why plant-based is the way. This is me telling you that I became plant-based because of this. And after becoming plant-based, the more that you learn about the environmental stuff and the animal compassion side, like the more that you learn about that, the more that you're proud to be plant-based But I'm just being honest with you. That's not the reason why I did this. And maybe it was coming from a place of ignorance, which I think for a lot of people, they just don't know a lot about it. But for me, this was a path that I walked and the science guided me there. And it was honest interpretation. And if you you ever start with the end result in mind, and then you want to fill in the gaps, you can make a twisted, convoluted path to where you're trying to get yourself to go. But you already chose the end point. And that's not science. That's not helping anyone. And so that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is that science is complicated, but these lifestyle choices are not. Oh, I love that. Tweet that. This is exactly what my grandma told me when I was a kid. Eat your fruits and vegetables. Drink water. Exercise. Get eight hours of sleep. You know what I mean? Don't overdo it on alcohol on the weekend. Like This is simple stuff. This is not that complicated. And the science, everything that I just said in the last 15 seconds, I can show you the data. I can show you the studies that are backing up that you will have positive changes to your gut microbiome if you do these simple things. Thank you, Dr. B. Drop the mic. Drop the mic. Boom. Drop out. the mic. Oh, my God. So succinct. So perfect. Be out. <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I really feel like this could be like a three or four hour long conversation. I know. That's why I have to be in the studio next time. Yes. Yes. We should all be in the studio together. Count me in. When you are in LA, Dr. B, you come straight here. We will talk for hours. <laughs> Please come. Can we listen to the Greatest Showman podcast together? Yes. Or the Greatest Showman soundtrack together? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get close up. Yes. yes. And have oversized coffee mugs. 
Yes. Oh, you're talking. First of all, I make really good coffee. And thanks to Allison and I together, we get in the kitchen and we can make like the most incredible coffee drinks, sugar free and with really great organic plant based milks and organic coffee. So we will have you covered. And I will have green juice and wine on hand. That's how I roll. Oh, I'll tell you. <laughs> All right, Dr. V, this has been so wonderful. Tell everyone where they can find you online, work with you, all that good stuff. Uh, well, I would love for people to come and join me at Instagram. That's like, you know, that's where I started and that's where I do most of my stuff. And so if you go to Instagram, it's the Gut Health MD. Um, I, ha- I do have a Facebook page under the exact same name. And I have a website, theguthealthmd.com with a newsletter, which is just, you know, it's like another take. I love like the different layers of sharing information, like that you can do a quick little Instagram post and then you can have your newsletter, whereas there's, there's a different level of detail. And then we can do this podcast together and really sort of break it down on a much higher level, like complex topics, like food sensitivities is not a simple topic. I'm glad we could talk about it. Agreed. Absolutely. And you have a great Instagram and I appreciate what you're doing to help educate all of us and inform all of us on what's really going on. So we appreciate you. And yeah, follow Dr. V at the guthealthmd.com. Follow Whitney at Eco Vegan Gal. And Whitney, where can everyone find you online? Well, right now, the best place is WhitneyLauritson.com, which may be in the show notes if I'm lucky. (laughs) (laughs) I have all sorts of resources there to guide you through the vegan lifestyle and be more eco-friendly and natural product recommendations that I love. And you also can follow my gut health journey as I continue to learn more about that. Thanks to people like Dr. B. Yes. And um, Dr. B, you have this Instagram and you've got some quotes that you say. And so you can really help people just get motivated by your quotes. And when you're on a new podcast, you announce it. So this is great. I appreciate both of you. Thank you so much for being here, you guys. Thanks for having us, Allison. And so nice to virtually meet you, Dr. B. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Can't wait to get to know you more and hear more about everything that you, all your amazing knowledge. This was a blast. I appreciate it. All right. See you next time, Food Heals Nation. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Side effects of this podcast may include increased health and vitality, thoughts of living longer, developing a more positive outlook on life. In rare cases, women have experienced a strong desire to change their status update from hashtag blessed to hashtag OMG even more blessed than yesterday, hashtag loving life. If you experience any of these symptoms, make sure to tweet a Kardashian immediately. 